Fade-in prologue. Pay attention. When I'm through, there will be a test. One day, suddenly, you're out of high school, happy as a grub-in shit, waking up with a hard-on and spending your day sitting around in your pee-stained underwear with your feet propped up next to the air-conditioner vent with cool air blowing on your nuts. And the next goddamn thing you know, you're crucified. And I don't mean symbolically. I'm talking nails in the paws and wood splinters in the ass, sore hands and feet and screams and a wavering attitude about the human race. It's the sort of thing that when it happens to you, you have a hard time believing old Jesus could have been all that forgiven about it. It hurts. Had I been J.C., I'd have come back from the dead matter than a badger with turpentine balls, and there wouldn't have been any of this peace and love shit. And I would have forgotten how to do trivial crap like turn water to wine and multiply bread and fishes. I'd have made myself big as the universe and made me two bricks just the right size, and I've gotten whirled between the bricks and whammo shit jelly. Joe R. Lansdale is the author of The Bottoms, winner of the 2001 Edgar Award for Best Novel. His latest novel is Sunset and Sawdust from Knopf. Welcome to Fine Print. Thank you. Glad to be here. Joe, you've created some of the strangest characters and situations that have made it into print and now into film. How do you discover these characters? Well, there are a variety of ways. A lot of times, uh, you know, I read things and they kind of go into the hopper and they pop around until finally they pop out and sometimes when they pop out they're pretty strange i may have one idea that i picked up here and one idea that i picked up in another spot and then maybe i'll have some social issue that's on my mind and then occasionally it's just the idea of experimenting with the prose but usually it's a combination of those things and it comes together to produce the story now your prose is one of the most interesting features of your writing it's constantly funny. You're, I think, one of our great humorists. Thank you. Could you talk about how you use the Southern dialect, talk about the rhythm of the speech pattern, and how you use that dialect to evoke humor, no matter what you're writing about, no matter how dark? I think it is rhythm to some extent, and it's like cursing. you got to know how to do it. I think it was Mark Twain. I'm not sure about this, but I believe that he cut himself shaving or something once and was cursing, and his wife maybe to mock him, stood behind him and cursed just like him. And he said, you know, she just didn't know how. She didn't understand the feeling. You know, she had the words but not the feeling. And I think that as a writer that you can tell somebody this thing, but you've got to have the feeling. You've got to have that rhythm. You've got to know when something is funny. It's like a comedian with timing. Uh, the stories I write are not what I would call comedies, but they certainly have a lot of humor, uh, some more so than others. But I believe, too, that the rhythm, strangely enough, is probably uh, has a lot to do with growing up in the South where you had uh, Southern preachers who have this sort of biblical rhythm. Now, I myself am not, uh, you know, a, a, a Christian myself, but I respect that belief. But I, do, I did grow up with fire and brimstone, and, and uh, I, I, I think that, the, that that kind of uh, lilt of the preacher, that, that sort of... Uh, attitude has a lot to do with the kind of prose that a lot of southern writers write and i believe that that's a big influence could you talk about the influence of the southern gothic on your writing who what when where i I think they're probably not all southern i I think mark twain had a big influence but he certainly was a southerner and uh, he had a broader view than just the south but you know when you think of twain you generally think of the south or you think of borderland south you know you think of uh, uh, the river the great mississippi and things of that nature and he certainly had a southern rhythm to what he did and i think flannery o'connor 
is another great influence on me. And there are many, many other writers, but those two, uh, speaking of Southern writers, I think I'd, I'd have to name as prominent. You're also a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, oh, aren't yeah, you? I certainly am. He He's my sentimental favorite author to this day. There may be other authors who are more mature, who have greater style, who have influenced me in other ways, but he's my sentimental favorite. Now, what made you start writing as a kid or whenever you did start writing? I always wanted to write. I, I can't remember not wanting to do that. I read very early on. Uh, comic books were a big influence on me. I read comics, and they actually got me to read all kinds of things because I wanted to learn how to read so I could read about Batman and Superman and other characters. Could you talk about your work in the comics? You've taken that up recently, haven't you? Well, it isn't recent. Actually, it's been a while. I started in the middle 90s or early 90s, and I did some work for DC Comics. I did Blood and Shadows, and a little later I did Jonah Hex for them. I did The Lone Ranger for Tops. Some of these with a friend of mine, Tim Truman, who did the art. And I did. they had a series at Dark Horse called... Uh, by Bizarre Hands by Joe R. Lansdale. So I had my own comic line there, which was were my stories being reprinted, and those were actually adapted by other writers. And I did other things uh, for other places. At D.C., I did a lot of other stuff. But recently there's a press called Avatar Press, and they're doing the drive-in uh, uh, stories as comics. Uh, the first issues, uh, or four issues, is the first novel, and the second novel will be done shortly. They also did On the Far Side of the Cadillac Desert with Dead Folks. Uh, which was a story, I think, that really brought me into your writing fully back in the day. It was one that made an impact when it came out. There were there were three stories of mine in early on. There have been several since, of course, fortunately for me. But there were three. It was Tight Little Stitches in a Dead Man's Back, Night They Missed the Horror Show, and On the Far Side of the Cadillac Desert. Those three kind of defined uh, a, a lot of people, uh, readers for me. You know, Could you talk about your influence in the horror world. Talk about coming up in the 80s. I, th- I think the very first thing I read by you was in the best of the horror show, Night in October. Oh, on a dark October. On a dark October, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of your own influence makes you feel kind of like you're uh, taking yourself too seriously, but I guess I, I'm, I'm at a stage in my life where it's been I've been published now for over 30 years. I guess I can say that uh, probably... A lot of us during the early 80s had begun to look at horror in a slightly different way. We, we, we took it, I think we started, social issues have always been a part of it, but I think we really, that became a bigger part of it. But also a just sort of a wild, off-the-wall approach to it was important. And for me, it was trying to bring Southern roots and mainstream fiction and horror fiction, genre fiction together. And as to whether I'm successful at that or not, that's up to the readers. But I seem to have, at this stage in my life, been a big influence in horror and seem to have influenced a lot of other writers, if I can believe them, from the the mail I get and from the uh, what, what is said to me when I meet other writers that are younger than me. And in some cases, my age. They said I was, you know, I read horror. Then when I read this, I went, whoa, this is different. But, you know, I wasn't the only one, nor am I trying to claim that, that that I think had an impact on horror fiction in the 80s. There were a bunch of us that had sort of gotten tired of the real quiet stuff. Although I like it and read it and have even written it, I just felt that there was a lot of stuff that was passing as quiet fiction that was really just boring. And so we said, let's stir it up. Let's just go for the gusto. Could you talk about your work in alternate history? 
Oh, I love alternate history. I always have. I think that's because I, I loved science fiction and fantasy growing up, and I loved comic books, which often dealt in alternate worlds. There, I think actually when you go back to uh, the comics, it, Batman uh, did these comics where it would be what if, and what if Batman married such and such, and how would life turn out for them? And those were alternate worlds or, or, or make-believe stories. So those were early influences. And then the science fiction and the, and the fantasy, and often it's history. I'm very interested in history, and I bring a lot of that aspect to those, most of those stories. So that's, that's another thing that makes it fun. And a novel you mentioned a little while ago I want to talk a little bit more about because it's a very odd and really enjoyable novel, The Drive-In. Um, yeah. And The Drive-In 2, tell us a little bit about what the novel is the sequel, and actually there's a part three coming out, isn't That's there? true, that's true. I just finished part three. I have to proof it. But the drive-in came out in 1988, I think, somewhere in there. And uh, what it had to do with was an article I had written based on a dream that I had about every night I'd, I'd go to sleep and I was at this drive-in. And uh, for some reason, this giant comet, that red comet passed over the drive-in. It had teeth. It smiled. And when it smiled, it changed everything. The drive-in, you couldn't get out of it. It was like this acidic goo that surrounded it that was jet black. And you're trapped there. And people were at first like amazed. And then after a little while, they start thinking, you know, what are we going to eat? And the concession stand mainly has, you know, candy and popcorn and things. Not the most conducive to health. Uh, very hypoglycemic and... Uh, so you have all these people gradually deteriorating as even that food begins to run out. And, of course, what is there to eat? Each other. And other bad things happen in the drive-in, which is reflected by the fact that the movies continue to run. And so people are, in a fact, in, in a fact these horror fans are living a horror life. And so it's both a, I guess, a, a tribute to enjoying these kind of outlaw movies as well as sort of looking at them and saying, what the hell is wrong with us, you know, that we're so intrigued by these things because we're becoming these things. And then, of course, there were a lot of other unique elements in there, including the popcorn king and who is uh, uh, made up of two of the characters that get welded together by weird lightning. Uh, it's a strange book. Uh, I, I always thought that it was funny. But I also thought that truly when you read it, it's one of the darkest books I've ever written because it's funny in a way, but it's dealing with social issues and, and uh, I think uh, the problems of humanity in its own small scale. Since then, you've written, trended more towards mysteries. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the Happen Leonard series, how that came to be. It's, there are books I totally look forward to Yeah, I, each I, issue. I love writing about Hap Collins and Leonard Pine. I had a two-book contract for Bantam, and I had written one called Cold in July that I, I had turned in. And so the second one, I decided I wanted to write another uh, novel with a with a first-person protagonist. I enjoy that. But I didn't want to do a private eye or something like that. I wanted like a regular guy, somebody who had grown up somewhat like me and had grown up in my generation. And um, I just started writing. I just says, what would happen? These guys out back shooting skeet, and then his friend is introduced, a black man. And gradually I realized as I was writing the novel that Hap Collins, the main character, the white character, was very much an, an old-style liberal. And he was a 60s guy, uh, a nice guy, a tough guy, but essentially kind of a kind of a soft touch and his best friend was Leonard Pine who was black and gay and Republican and not a soft touch and one of the toughest guys that you would ever meet and these guys were like brothers 
And I thought that it was interesting to bring this difference uh, in their character and in their personality and in their background because that's, and people say, oh, that wouldn't happen. But it does happen. A lot of my friends are, are you know, they may have a totally different belief than I do in politically, uh, religious, uh, social, whatever. But I thought, you know, you don't see this much in, in, in books. And also when I did it, I tried not to gild the lily for one side. I would have, have them present their views and about political situations and things of that nature in, in the course of this adventure and action novel that I hoped would engage people. Also, because these two guys were very humorous. Very humorous, I thought. Oh, they're very funny and really enjoyable. Now, do you feel that as you've grown older and matured, your work has trended more away from the, some of the outland, somewhat away from the outlandish stuff, and more towards mature fiction, the mysteries, and your period books, which I want to talk about a little bit later. Is this I, you growing up? I, I don't know if that's it or not. I, I think it's just a matter of like I've been there, done that, so it's time to do something else. Um, you know, people who read Sunset and Sawdust uh, that are real mainstream readers are probably going to go, "Oh my God." But some of the people who have been reading my stuff for years might look at it and think it's, it's much more mainstream. And it certainly seems to be. It certainly uh, seems to be responded to by a mainstream audience, as it was The Bottoms and A Fine Dark Line and, and some other things. I think some of it is maybe maturity, but I don't think that, that mature necessarily means that you can't be over the top or wild. It's just, again, for me, it's just like I've done that little trick and I'm doing something else. I have a new collection called Mad Dog Summer that's coming out, and it has a story about guys driving to hell to rescue the devil, and uh, in a '57 Chevy, no less. So I don't know that I have. I think I just play back and forth, and and I always wrote things like the Magic Wagon, which though it had elements of fantasy, I I think was what most people would think of as a serious novel. But I actually think the Drive-In's a serious novel. I, I don't I don't believe that it's a shallow novel at all. I think that people who read it on the surface. That may be what they see. Now, saying it's serious is not the same thing as me saying it's great or good. I have no idea. That's up for the reader. But I know my intent. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your new novel, Sunset and Sawdust. It takes place in the 1930s. It's a time that appeals to me because my, my father was in his 40s when I was born, and, and my mother was in her late 30s. And they had come to uh, their adulthood, their young adulthood, during the 1930s. And so I knew a lot about that time, the Great Depression, and they had been through it all. Um, so I had some background there, and I had used that background in the novel The Bottoms and in a young adult novel called The Boar, B-O-A-R. And uh, so that was there. Also, there had been in, in Nacogdoches, uh, where I live, Texas, this woman whose husband had been either a sheriff or a constable and he had died and she had taken over his office and had been a very good sheriff but I took that from another standpoint I thought you know I wanted to say uh, uh, something uh, about this woman being the the constable but I also wanted to make an exciting story and so I had the fact that her husband actually was not a very good guy and he tried to rape her, and she killed him in the process of protecting herself. And through a quirk of fate, which I don't want to give away, I want the readers to find that out, she becomes the constable. And people think, well, this is kind of a joke, and it's not something to take seriously. But she takes it seriously, and she's damn good at it. And in this community, there is a murder that is unique and somewhat odd, and I'll let the readers, I hope, find that out. And that begins to lead her into this, this really 
convoluted it, uh, not for the reader, I hope, but for her, this sort of strange situation that's going on that she has to unravel and find out who did what to whom as well as stay alive in the process. And I think the thing that I hope is interesting about it is that it has a lot of interesting and unique characters that she meets and has to interact with. Could you talk about these uh, period novels, the 1930s novels? You told us that you set them because that in the 30s because your parents yes. were coming to, to of age then. How do you research them, and how do you create a mystery that's set so long ago? Well, I think that the research was uh, minimal because I knew so much about it through my parents. But also I read things in, in history and, and uh, read novels. I, what I, one good way to do it is go back and find novels written during that time. Find novels written during the 1930s, read them, and you get more of a feel for the social aspects and the cultural aspects from the novel than you do a lot of times from history. So that was one way that it was done. Second, when I was, uh, thirdly, uh, when I was growing up in uh, East Texas in the 1950s, I was uh, 50s and early 60s and middle 60s, all, well, all the way up to the late 60s almost, it hadn't changed that much from the 1930s. There, you know, there was a little bit of change noticeable from the mid-60s on. But really in the 50s, it looked a lot like the 1930s. The cars were different, although they were, uh, you know, they were similar in style to some extent. But the cars were different. But people's clothing was not all that drastically different. People's lives were not all that drastically different. So I had a, sort of that personal experience through growing up in an area that was somewhat like that. That, the history, my parents... It all came together for me to to be able to get that feel for the book. As for the mystery, I can't tell you how I do that because I don't know. I don't plot the books. I just start with a with a situation that interests me, and I usually have a scene or two that I think would be interesting that I want to write too, and then everything else develops around it. The characters tell me what to do in a sense. That was one of my questions was whether you plot out your books or create them. No, I, I don't plot them. I, I What I do is I work three hours a day, five days a week, I get up in the morning, I write, and then I'm done. I do three to five pages a day. And if it's going well, I might accidentally get 10, 15. That could happen, but it doesn't happen very often. But if I do three to five a day and I polish those pages as best I can, then when I'm finished, I don't have to go back and do all these drafts. I go back and do a polish, not a, not a new draft, but a polish. So that way the books are they come out relatively quick, and I can feel like a hero every day. Every day I did my three to five pages. Could you talk a little bit about the influence of Texas, not just as a place to live, but just as a, a state of mind? Yeah, it is, a, it is a mythological state in many ways, because what we know about it is partly true, and then what we know about it is not true. You know, the Alamo is a great example. You have this movie coming out, and one of the things is, is that when they started making this movie, how do you separate myth from reality? And the truth of the matter is that I don't think they can. And Texas, so many people came to Texas to get away from past lives. It was it was founded by dreamers and convicts. And it being the only state in the Union that was also a country, its own country, it has a whole different attitude because we've always carried the, kind of that chauvinistic view that we're better than everybody else on into the uh, the the present time because hey we were a country we get to fly we're the only one that, uh, in the nation that get to fly our flag as high as the American flag it was part of our agreement when we came into the states uh, and there there are other little uh, funny little picadillos like that but that's uh, uh, that, I think that's a lot of it is that we start learning Texas history 
in early on. We don't study American history till we study Texas history. And so it, it, it really is a lot of how people are raised and how, how Texas is thought of, which is not to say all Texans agree. You know, we all have totally different views. I mean, politically, I'm way left of the people that I'm dealing with uh, in my state. Out here, that might be considered more central, you know. So it really, it really depends. But Texans in general, those people that are born in Texas and that have been raised in Texas in this way are very, very, um, I guess, uh, egocentric about their state to one extent. And they're often uh, strong individuals. Could you talk about how the state of Texas plays out in your fiction, how it affects what you write? I think the environment is part of it. Texas itself is a varied varied state. It's not what everybody thinks, that it's just desert and that there's some mountains over here. In fact, most people's idea of Texas is Utah because that's what they see in the movies that John Ford made, like The Searchers. That's, that's Utah. It's Monument Valley. Uh, where I live in Texas, in East Texas, is different than the rest of Texas. The southwestern and northern parts of Texas refer to us as behind the pine curtain. And that's because we have lots of trees where we live. And our, our there's a lot of uh, rivers and creeks and a lot of man-made lakes. There's only one uh, uh, natural lake. It's called Caddo Lake. But all, but all of this is totally different than what people think Texas is like. It's much more like, in its looks, Louisiana. You know, not, not like the rest of Texas. But its culture is neither quite southern nor quite southwestern. But yet... It has combinations of those things as well as this uniqueness about it. And I think it's unlike any other part of Texas, totally unlike it. Races and racism play a part in your fiction. That's right. Could you talk about that and how you deal with it? Well, I think racism is an, is a, is an ugly thing anywhere. And uh, the idea that it only exists in the South always kind of infuriates me and makes me angry because you look at the news almost weekly and find that that's false. Um, but we have a dark legacy that uh, people still, uh, I think, associate with us, and sometimes rightfully so and sometimes not so rightfully so. Uh, I mean, you got to remember they had riots in Los Angeles and and things of that nature were certainly race-related. But I think that when I was growing up in the 50s and the 60s, I was struck by the fact that blacks had to go to water fountains and that they couldn't go to the what they called washeterias, which were people washed clothes, or they couldn't go in restaurants that, that whites went into. And at, when I was young, I didn't think anything about it. That's the way, you know, everybody was raised. But as I got a little older and I started looking at this, I'd go, you know, what's this about? Why is this going on? Why do they have to go upstairs to watch the movie? I don't understand this. And we're all down here. Why do they got to be in the balcony? Why do they even have a separate entrance that they go into? Uh, why are they treated this way? And so a lot of that was me growing up during that period of civil rights and when these things were changing, when Lyndon Johnson made some changes in civil rights and when uh, blacks were uh, striving to have uh, uh, the equality uh, that whites had. So a lot of that's impacted on me, and it comes out in the fiction. Talk about the relationship between your characters, Hap and Leonard, a little bit, how that plays into that. Well, that, 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 yeah, I play with that a little bit because although, you know, I— the thing you remember is when you're writing crime novels, you're writing about bad people. But that doesn't mean to reflect that that's how everybody is in Texas. I think that's a misnomer that people have. But if you got crime and you're dealing with guys that are dealing with bad people, then you're going to come across a lot more bad, rotten people, including races. And it also gives me a chance to show how this, this black and white couple, these friends, these these brothers in a sense, can 
get past those kind of problems themselves and can live together and can can have differences, can even get mad at each other and not get along at times. But they, they always come back to pulling things back together. And by going to the center, the core of their relationship, which is that they can depend on each other when they can depend on no one else. It's family of their choosing, not family of their birth. You've done a lot of work in the small press. A lot. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about why you choose to work there, what choices you actually have as a writer. I choose to work there primarily because I've written so much for the small press in the past. I don't think they made my career because I was always publishing in the mainstream too, but I think they contributed to it, and I think they're valuable. I also think that they allow me sometimes to do things that the mainstream press might allow me to do, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to promote it. Some of the small presses, I actually sell quite a bit of books and make quite a bit of money, too. And yet, if I were publishing it with uh, Doubleday or Knopf, my publisher now, or, or Warner, I think even if they published it, they wouldn't know how to market it to those kind of people who want that book. And what I'm finding, is, strangely enough, is that people who read the mainstream books sometimes graduate, very often uh, go over and start reading the offbeat things. And, and they say, you know, I never knew I'd like this, but now I'm, I'm hooked. So I, I love doing it for the, for the uh, small press for that reason. And uh, also because I, I think you want to keep connection with, with your roots and the kind of things that you started out doing. And I think it's important to support these small presses as well because I believe that as way thing way publishing is going, I would like to see these small presses grow and become what was Doubleday in the 1970s or uh, some other house in the 1970s where they, they bought a variety of fiction. They were trying to make their money back with some profit instead of having to make ferocious profit on everything. So I, I love that. And then I get to do the more mainstream books, like the Knopf book, like Sunset and Sawdust, and, uh, you know, go, go that route as well as have this other as kind of like two trains running beside each other, and not to mention working in film and, and television and comics and things of that nature. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work in television. I didn't know you'd been working in television. Well, I worked in uh, I wrote cartoons. Really? I wrote uh, Batman the Animated Series. I did three of those. I did one called Batman and Robin Adventures, and I worked on a Superman, which I just contributed to. But I did that back in the 90s, and I greatly enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I also um, have written screenplays. I've, I've optioned uh, one of them, oh gosh, 10 times over you know 18 years, a thing called Dead in the West. And then I had a... Uh, I, I wrote a screenplay for Cold in July and Two Bear Mambo and, uh, oh gosh, something else. But all of those things have been bought or optioned. And currently I have numerous things under option. Uh, Ridley Scott has uh, The Big Blow. And uh, The Drive-In looks like that's about to come together. And The Bottoms are, is optioned and A Fine Dark Line is optioned. And uh, I'm supposed to do a screenplay here shortly. I can't talk about it right now, but it, we're uh, still contracting for that. And uh, I'm, I've always been interested in film. It's, I just prefer books and short stories by a long shot. But uh, I'll probably be doing more in film as, as the years go by, I hope. Tell us a little bit about how your story, Bubba Hotep, came mm. to be a movie. Well, Bubba Hotep was a very weird novella about Elvis Presley, who didn't really die, but was in a rest home in East Texas with a black man who thought he was JFK. And uh, also, uh, there's there are other characters in the story that d don't make it to the film. 
But there's also this guy called Kimosabi who thinks he's the Lone Ranger. But strangely enough, there's also a mummy in this thing, uh, as an Egyptian mummy. Uh, he was one of the lesser-known mummies that was being carried around the country by bus. <laughs> and they were showing his body. And it ran off in, during a storm in, 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 in this uh, uh, creek. And uh, through a, a series of events, which you'd have to read the story to get or see the film, he comes to life and he's sucking souls out of the people in the rest home. And being at, that their souls are small, he, can't, he never, can never get enough to really, you know, to turn himself uh, back to where he wants to be. So he has to just survive on these old people who are in the rest home. And this guy who is uh, Elvis Presley and the guy who thinks he's John F. Kennedy one on a walker, one in a, sometimes in a wheelchair, team up to destroy this mummy. But it, it also has a lot of, uh, I think, fun uh, dialogue between these two characters as well as, you know, touching on some social issues and things. It was, it's been a big hit in, in uh, all, it's been in all the art houses, which I think is funny. Bruce Campbell and I laughed about that, art houses. <laughs> but uh, it's been a big hit in in that manner, and uh, it's starting to get a little more mainstream distribution. And it'll be on DVD uh, May twenty fifth with a lot of bells and whistles. Should be a lot of fun. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decide? You've written a lot of short fiction, and you write a lot of novels. Yeah. When you sit down at the typewriter, keyboard, pen in hand, how do you decide? How do you know what you're writing? I usually just have a mood that I want to do a short story, and so my mind starts looking for short story ideas, sort of like a magpie looking for corn or something, you know, and, and I just sort of find something, I know that's a short story idea. And uh, I usually know if it's a short story or novel idea immediately. A couple of times I've been fooled, but um, it really has a lot to do with what kind of mood I'm in and what I want to do. When you're structuring a novel, do you work out which threads you're going to create and follow them through? Do you keep tabs of it? How do you, especially like these, the, your period mysteries, how do you architect something like this? I, I don't really plot them. I, I sometimes will jot a note on the back of an old envelope that says, you know, don't forget this or something like that. But I really let it happen as it goes. And I'm, I'm sure my subconscious, of course, is working on this all along. But at some point I'll recognize a thread and I will decide, is this the real thread or is this the thread I want to bring the reader down until I tie a knot off of it and go to the other thread, you know. But I've always thought that my books were strong on pace and character and color and dialogue, and I try not to really overwhelm them with plot, but it really is a kind of development as I go. That's the best way I know how to describe it. Talk about the Happ and Leonard mysteries. You've been developing these characters across a series of novels. True. How do you do that, and what, are, what do you see happening to them? I know these guys. It's, uh, I, when I wrote the first one, Savage Season, I didn't know it was going to be a series. But when I sat down to write the uh, sat down to write the next book, I discovered that I still wanted to write about them, and so a Mucho Mojo came from that. And uh, then after that, I just enjoyed writing about them, and I wrote several books in a row. I, it's probably three in a row before I took a break and then came back to them. But they are so much like people I, that I've known. Or they have attitudes like people I've known, and I and I and kind of referring back to what I talked about earlier, it gave me an opportunity to do these things with black and white and social issues, and yet write a real rollicking adventure with a lot of humor. So I just love those guys, uh, and I hope to write about them soon. Could you talk about being 
uh, writer who's part of the collector's book world. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I seem to be one of the more collectible writers, uh, and I, I couldn't tell you why that is. I don't know. It, it's funny how that happens because there are a lot of writers that are very, very popular and sell oh, thousands of books in the mainstream, but nobody collects them. And then you have writers like Stephen King who is both collectible and highly popular. And special editions are done uh, that are maybe done in leather or they have something special about them that people collect and want and will pay a lot of money for. And then yet another author they'll do the same thing for, and for whatever reason, people don't want that one. There are some writers that for whatever reason are more collectible than others, and I couldn't tell you why that is. I really don't know why I'm collectible, and I couldn't tell you why some of the other authors are collectible, and I couldn't tell you why some are not. How do you feel being part of a kind of a cult? Well, it's it's interesting. It's uh, I, I've always wanted to move bigger than that cult because every writer that wants a bigger audience, uh, and I want to be a, have a bigger audience without you know, doing something I don't want to do. I want to do my kind of books. Uh, I'm willing to do different kinds of books, but as long as they're my books and they have my brand on them. But, yeah, it's it's not bad. It's been good to me, and I think that the small press has allowed me to continue to feed that cult audience, which has been very, very faithful, and I'm very, very grateful to them. Could you talk a little bit also about your pulp fiction I, when I was growing up, a lot of the fiction I read was pulp fiction, even though it wasn't directly from the pulps, but it was work that had been collected from the pulps in anthologies and things of that nature. And some of the science fiction magazines and mystery magazines, the stories they printed were often reprints from the pulps or they were very pulp in style. And uh, I think that had a lot to do with what I was influenced by growing up. But by the same token, I might be reading... Uh, you know, this old pulp-style fiction and then reading on this side um, Mark Twain or Hemingway or someone like that. So I always had this collision of different things. I've read the, those, uh, co- like Twain, I read early on, but say Hemingway I read when I was older. But all of these things kind of came together. But I always liked the color and the imagination and the excitement of the pulps. And I think that they had a, a major influence on me, even though for the most part the pulp fiction itself was pulp magazines, rather, were gone. Though that fiction also transferred over into uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and places like that. In fact, they borrowed stories, uh, thriller, borrowed stories from the pulps. So that element was there along with this this sort of modern sensibility that was seeping in through people like Ray Bradbury and, and Richard Matheson and others. You've done some science fiction, but not a lot of serious yeah. science fiction. Yeah. It's the one genre that, that you've passed by. I'm curious as to why. Well, I, I guess it depends that I didn't have any science background. <laughs> I didn't know. It, and also, some people call some of the things I've done science fiction, like the drive-in was marketed as science fiction. Uh, the drive-in, too. I don't necessarily think of them as science fiction. I think they may have some science fiction furniture. There's even a, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction even has a little place under horror that tells why I'm not in there. <laughs> Just a couple of sentences. But I I think they're probably right to a great extent. But most things that are called science fiction, in the past especially, weren't necessarily scientific. I have written a number of short stories like Trains Not Taken, which is an alternate universe. Uh, uh, there's one, uh, Two Moons uh, West of Nacogdoches, 
uh, is also a science fiction alternate universe. I've written Zeppelin's West, which I, is a science fictional alternate universe. There's one called Flaming London, which deals with the time machine and deals with War of the Worlds that's coming out. And so I've I've touched on the themes of science fiction, oftentimes humorously or oftentimes as a nod to the past. But I probably, from the standpoint of hard science, well, not probably, definitively, have not written any of that kind of science fiction. But I've written more than you think. Now, tell us a little bit about, as a writer, somebody comes to you and says, I want you to write a Batman novel or a novel about a character who's already created and has a, yeah. a large mythology and baggage. How do you deal with that? Well, the only way I would do it is if it was a mythology that I was interested in. And I grew up on Batman, so I was excited to write for the Batman the Animated uh, Series. And it was something my kids loved. And it was also something that I thought, uh, when it was called Batman the Animated Series, was very smart and uh, just beautiful. Uh, I loved it. Um, the um, Tarzan, I, I grew up on Edgar Rice Burroughs, as I said, and I was able to finish an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel that he left uncompleted. That was a great honor. And so I, I did that with great respect and reverence. It, I, I don't know that it's a great book. It wasn't his best material, nor was it my best material, but I think it's entertaining, and I think it was, like I said, a great honor, and I did the best I could with that material and tried to stay true to it. The Lone Ranger, I somewhat updated, but I loved The Lone Ranger. So I, uh, Tim and I, who did those in the comics, brought uh, you know, the old sensibilities as well as the new to our version of The Lone Ranger. But we still, we were always reverent to the character. So, Joe, what do you have coming up for us? Well, uh, the new book, Sunset and Sawdust, of course, is out now. And uh, I'm going to have uh, the Bubba Hotep is going to be on uh, a DVD from that with commentary from Don Coscarelli and Bruce Campbell and and uh, some things from my from me. And uh, I have a new book I'm working on, uh, and one finished the Drive-In 3 and a collection called Mad Dog Summer and another collection called The King and I. All of these things have gotten kind of backed up in the pipeline, so it looks like I wrote them all very quickly, but they're actually things that have been done over a period of time. So I have many things forthcoming. So where is The King and I coming from? The King and I is coming from Subterranean. It's a, ser- it's a, it's a little book with mostly little short shorts, humorous stories, and uh, it's kind of a... Um, a follow-up to Mad Dog Summer, which is a serious collection that has uh, a serious in the sense that it's got a broader uh, tapestry. It's got uh, Mad Dog Summer, which was the basis for the novel The Bottoms, uh, and it's got uh, The Big Blow, which, uh, which was also novelized and which has been optioned. It has the one about the people driving the 57 Chevy to, to hell to rescue the devil. It has one about a steam man of the prairie battling uh, the vampires. and So, see, it's very broad, and it's uh, it's got the humor, it's got the fun stuff, and then it's got things like Mad Dog Summer, which are really very character-driven and, and about uh, social issues and, and historical issues in the 1930s. Could you talk a little bit about the Lost Lansdale series? Yeah, I, the Lost Lansdale series was done for my fans, and it was done for those people that I kept seeing says, oh, we want to see all those old stories. And I said, no, you don't. And, oh, yes, we do. No, 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 you don't. But they kept asking me, and I was looking through them, and I found some that really just couldn't be reprinted. But I found a number that I thought were kind of interesting or fun or showed the growth of me as a writer for those who cared about such things. And we put together two volumes of those uh, short stories. And uh, they're not great short stories, but they have a lot of commentary about my writing career and things that interested people. And we did those in a limited way. Then there were other books that I thought were really good books, 
but for some reason had fallen through the cracks. One, The Boar, which was a young adult book I wrote. It's one of my favorite books, and it was takes place in the 1930s. And uh, I was glad to get that one done. There was one uh, called Waltz of Shadows that I wrote a not a very complimentary introduction to that I wish I could take back because when I reread the book, I was very pleased with it. And uh, there's one, a Western I wrote called Blood Dance as part of that series, which is a, a, a fun Western. It's not a, a masterpiece in any way. But Subterranean, we wanted to offer my fans these things that they kept saying they wanted to read, that they had heard rumors about or heard about. So we offered those, and it's a mixture of the things that are, I say, of historical interest to those people who follow my career, and then to people, to, and, the, and a mixture of good novels, I think, like The Boar and like Walls of Shadows, and uh, interesting things like Blood Dance, the Western, as well as other things. Those are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head. Tell us a little bit about your westerns. That's an interesting genre for you to approach. Yeah, I love the West, and in fact, I want to write more in that field, and uh, perhaps more, uh, they're, they're calling them novels of the West these days, because they think that sells better. They they hear Western, and a lot of people start thinking, uh, you know, the basic bonanza stories. But the Western is something that I've always loved, and some people say that I've never really gotten away from it, that Sundance and Sawdust and Sun. Uh, Sunset and Sawdust, I know the title of my own book, is in many ways a Western. And it certainly has some elements of that. I think it's true of the Hap Collins and Leonard Pine novels. I think in many ways they are Westerns. They're broader than the normal Western, but they have certainly an influence and a flavor. Things like The Magic Wagon, which is one of my favorite of my own books, takes place in the at the death of the West in 1909 as the West is ending. And it has elements of fantasy and, and elements of uh, uh, a coming-of-age novel. And yet it's also a Western, and but it doesn't quite fit in any pigeonhole. There are other Westerns that I have in progress that I think are a little bit more traditional, but yet they, they have a broader view of the West, and I think they're pretty historically accurate if I ever get a chance to finish them. I hope you do get a chance to finish them. We've been talking with Joe R. Lansdale. His latest novel is Sunset and Sawdust. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.